How, how, how many fish would be able to survive off the rotting, flaking carcass of Nigel Farage, do you think? And for how long? <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say that that would be legal now, Dave. You would have to bring Farage back to shore. <laughs> and he would become fish Is feed. there no quota? Is there no quota for how much Farage we can fish? <laughs> Hello, Dave! Hello, Ollie! Hello, hello! How are you? I'm alright, but you fell off your bike, didn't you? I did fall off my bike. I got a very bruised shoulder and an exceptionally wounded ego. Oh, well, I hope that uh, the next half an hour or so of scintillating environmental chat will nurse you and, and soothe you back onto your way to righteousness. We are Sustainababble, which is your friendly little environment podcast about people and the planet and why can't we all be friends. And this is episode 53 of It. What have we got in it, all? <laughs> well, uh, this week um, we're going to be talking about um, you, you know how how uh, some animals have very long necks, yeah, like like giraffes, long necks. So we're yes. going to be talking about the long necks of a giraffe. But but some people um, have very brass necks, <laughs> don't yes. they? Uh, and one, some of those people are like Nigel Farage. So we're going to be talking about that bizarre bizarre spectacle during the week involving Nigel Farage and fish and the Thames and all that. So, some other people have got their necks on the line. Oh, this is quite good, actually. Uh, and yeah. and that includes Volkswagen, who, you know, we've talked about before, and Dieselgate and lying and cheat devices has meant that they are all a bit knackered. So the necks are on the line, and they have decided they're going to do something quite radical and different, and potentially it's a reason to be cheerful. So it's next this week, Dave. Let's neck our way to... Let's, oh, we can neck nominate... That would be trendy and irresponsible, wouldn't it? Sustainer Babble is not an irresponsible podcast. So if you have anything that happens to you during the course of this podcast that makes you all frothy and angry, don't take it up with anyone that we work for, which is environmental charities, but these are very much our own views. So take it up with yourself or take it up with us, but don't stick your neck out and make a tit of yourself, yes? (laughs) Very good. Right, let's go. In of the week. So this week we are launching straight into the section of the show named after Senator Jim Inhofe in America, who is a bad smell. <laughs> he is a bad smell. He's, he's a, a bad. He's an awful whiff. <laughs> he is. He's malodorous. Uh, he is all of those things because he thinks that climate change isn't real because there's still snow. So we named a section of the show after him. And this is it, Inhofe Corner. And in Inhofe Corner this week, well, it's somebody who is sadly very high profile in the UK, um, but is an idiot. Uh, his name is Nigel Farage. Why is he in Inhofe Corner, Dave? Well, I think it's probably just best if you have a listen to this. Well, the UKIP leader Nigel Farage has been involved in an exchange of views with the musician and Remain campaigner Bob Geldof. No fisherman's friend. You are on the European Parliament fishing. 
Education Committee and you attended one out of 43 meetings. You're a fraud, Nigel. Go back to the Mr Farage was with a group of fishing boats that were sailing past Parliament in a protest over European Union fishing policies. What Mr Geldof, multi-millionaire Mr Geldof, did was show his absolute contempt for the men and women that have come here today from right across the United Kingdom, asking, demanding to be listened to, as their communities are destroyed by the common fisheries policy. I think, frankly, as a spectacle, it's pretty disgraceful. What? What? Oh, What's going? Why? How? This? Who, it, uh, uh, is this real? This I'm is. Gonna, a r- I'm pinching my. Is this? I don't feel like I'm awake. This can't actually be happening. <laughs> it was the this weirdest. isn't politics, is it? This is a dream. It is. No, this is politics. This is this is politics in the UK in June 2016, and it's the weirdest thing I have ever ever seen. And oh, I hate it, Dave. Make it go away. Well, I can't make it go away. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to talk to someone who can tell us what the hell was going on. So uh, that is all massively weird and confusing. Um, so to try and make a bit of sense of it, we decided we'd um, we'd interview a chap called Griffin. This is Griffin Carpenter. Hello, Griffin. Hey, guys. How's it going? Very good. Um, who are you, Griffin, and why are you talking to us? <laughs> That's not very nice. Griffin, please <laughs> tell the audience um, who you are. <laughs> yeah, so I, I work as an economist at the New Economics Foundation, and uh, a lot of my work over the past couple of years has focused on fisheries, particularly in the EU context. So um, there has been some really weird stuff going on in London over the last week, when, unless I was on drugs, what seemed to happen was that Nigel Farage, who is the leader of UKIP, was on a boat, and he was there with lots of fishy people, and they were on boats. And then Bob Geldof was on another boat, and he was playing very loud pop music at Nigel Farage, and it all got very confusing and weird, and everyone was talking about it. What was that all about? <laughs> yeah, that's basically how I saw it too. Um, so it all started, uh, there's, a, there's a group called Fishing for Leave, a um, bunch of uh, fishers, mostly from Scotland, um, and they planned this protest where they're going to come down to the Thames and try to make their voice heard. Um, fishers in general are against uh, the European Union, against European Union management of fish stocks. Uh, so unfortunately, what kind of happened is that voice kind of got drowned out. Um, Farage became uh, the voice of the protest and, and Bob Geldof, the kind of strange voice of the counter-protest. Uh, what did Bob Geldof have so, to do with it? Why was Bob Geldof on the boat? I, I don't know where he came from. I've been working on fisheries <laughs> for a couple of years, never came across Bob's work before. Uh, so I, I don't know where that came from. And as I say, it's unfortunate that we didn't really get that much debate around fisheries policy. It was basically just two large personalities with megaphones. Yeah, the uh, rather unedifying sight of a couple of millionaires chucking water each other on uh, at each other on the Thames. So why then? Why Let, let's for a moment forget about the the kind of Alan Partridge esque behaviour of uh, of Nigel Farage on a boat uh, and ask just going back to what you said about um, the majority of fisheries being against uh, membership of the EU and uh, why? Why? What is it specifically that they don't like? Sure. So. Management of fisheries in the EU, uh, I mean, we need to understand a little bit of the history about how it came about. And 
you know, there was a great deal of overfishing in EU waters. We've known this. We've seen the trends for a long time. Uh, the fish stocks were being depleted, um, and actually the, the landings of fish were already starting to go down. We could see that as early as the 1950s um, because the fish populations were so low. Even if you increase your effort, even if you increase technology, you just couldn't get enough fish out of the ocean. So this was commonly understood around the time of uh, the European Union. Um, and then the common fisheries policy really got going in about 1983, and that's where they had fishing quotas, so a limit on the amount that you could fish. And so that's a limit on the amount that, that everyone in the EU can fish, or just like in particular bits of it? What? Yeah, so it's both. So the European Union will set a cap, let's say 30,000 tonnes of cod in the North Sea. You can't fish more than that. They've consulted with some scientists, and, and that's what they've come to. Uh, and then that's divided out among the member states, different countries of the EU. Uh, and how that's decided is largely based on what they call relative stability, which is the amount you were fishing in that area of that species before the quota was set. So this is a, a period in the 1970s where they say, okay, so the UK was fishing 30% of this stock, France was fishing 20%, etc., and they divide it out based on that share. And that's fixed throughout time. So even today, when the quotas go up and down, the, the uh, percentage that goes to different countries is fixed. Now, what the fishers are angry about is this whole quota setting process that they feel uh, often the quotas are set too low and they're struggling to make a living. And, and that's true. It, it's, it's a pretty tough job. No one is, is denying that. That's for sure. So, so you're saying they're right, basically, that the, they're annoyed because they're not being allowed by the EU to catch all the fish they want to catch, catch. And you're saying that's true. And you're saying that's for a good reason. Um, and they're saying it's not for a good reason. Is that basically right? That, that's basically it. And we need to recognize that um, over the past couple of decades, we've been in the difficult part. The basis of fisheries management, fisheries economics is if you fish less today, you get more in the future. But the day today part is still very difficult. The fishing less today part is, is not easy to do. Um, what we are seeing now is actually signs that it's working. There's signs of recovery. Fish stocks are growing. And this is something very new. We haven't seen this in about a century of looking at fisheries. Outside of the world, world wars, um, you don't get to see fish stocks actually increasing in size. So this is fantastic that we're seeing this. And as a result, now that the fish stocks are increasing, the quotas have been increasing over the past few years. And actually profits in the UK industry are, are massive. They're going up to around 30%. One thing that um, uh, some people on, on this on the same side as Farage claim is, uh, is that the common fisheries policy forces fishermen to throw back a lot of dead fish into the sea uh the i don't know if um, you've been following uh an old friend of ours or rather enemy of ours owen patterson who was the the previous minister in um in the department for uh, the environment but his claim is that that fishermen are throwing back more dead fish into the sea than they land is, is that true is there any truth in that and if so why is that happening uh, that's definitely not true as the whole. Oh, there might be some isolated <laughs> instance of of one particular stock in one particular area where that's the case. Um, the idea of quota management is you have a limit. So let's go back to our 30,000 tons of cod in, in the North Sea. That, that's our limit. So what happens if a vessel catches over that limit? They've caught too much. So 
do you let them land it or not? That's the question of, of this discarding. And okay, the idea okay. of a limit is you can't have people go more than that. If you have a speed limit, if you're going 200 and 100, what, what happens? <laughs> it's not really a limit if you can go above that. Um, and so that's the basis of this discarding. Um, so what's actually happened recently, and, and some people might remember this, another strange character to get involved in fisheries policy, Hugh Fernand Whittingstall, had a, a big campaign a couple years ago called Fish Fight. And, and that was against this wasteful practice of seeing people throw fish overboard. Um, for better or for worse, uh, policy is now being changed. So actually, those discarded fish needs to be landed. Uh, the concern that you hear from the industry now is that basically instead of being discarded to sea, it's discarded to landfill because you still aren't allowed to sell it. Otherwise, it's not a limit. So you're going to hear a lot, and indeed we have been hearing a lot, and up until the referendum this week, there will still be a lot more about we should leave the EU because then we can take back control of our fish and our waters, and we can stop these filthy foreigners coming over here and having a go at our cod, right? So if what you're saying is at the moment, Brussels tells us how much we can fish, isn't that basically right? So wouldn't it be the case that if we leave the EU, we can just go fish what we want? Aren't they right about that? Uh, no. Um and some of this goes back to how I described the common fisheries policy began in the first place with the relative shares going to different countries. Um, because the fact is people don't really, in fisheries management, people don't really talk about British waters. It's not something that makes sense to... Or it doesn't make a lot of sense to the fish either. Right? <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> um, but so countries have been fishing in, in British waters and we've been fishing in, in French waters for, for a long time. So some of these uh, legal agreements will go back to the Middle Ages um, where countries have been fishing around. So, And, and this is international law. Um, it's not really desirable from a fisheries point of view uh, on, on the economic side. Uh, you know, these Dutch trawlers that are fishing in, in UK waters not only have some of them purchased uh, British quota, um, but they fish things like herring, that really don't have a market in the UK, but they do in the Netherlands. So they they fish it and, and they land it in the Netherlands. And that's just something that's evolved over time. Um, also, I mean, the fact that UK vessels fish in other countries' waters isn't insignificant. About 20% of the landings from uh, UK boats happen in other EU countries um, and even more into countries like Norway. So it's just a really mixed up ecosystem of of vessels everywhere and as you say dave fish don't really respect borders no, so i've tried to make you, them respect they just will not oh stubborn aren't they <laughs> so stubborn so you can draw the line and say okay this is going to be british waters and this is going to be french waters but what happens is the fish stocks will move through them so the great worry here is that if we have more of an adversarial relationship with the EU. And we set our quotas and they set their quotas um, and we're kind of working against each other. Then what happens if a fish stock moves through EU waters as they do when they migrate and it goes through Germany or France before it comes here, what's to stop the EU, the remaining part of the EU, to fish that population down before it gets to us? And this is what currently happens um, during some of our relationships with Faroe Islands, Iceland and Norway. Uh, is that because we don't need to come to a quota agreement with them. It's what's been called the herring wars or the mackerel wars, where the scientists say, you shouldn't fish more in this ecosystem of 800,000 tons. And then the EU will say, 
okay, we're going to take 600,000 tons of that. And Norway says, we're going to take 1 million. And the Faroes Islands says, we're going to take 500,000. And you don't come to an agreement because everyone's pursuing their own interest. And this is really why fisheries became managed under the EU in the first place. I think Greenpeace have been doing a bit of work on this about how, um, to some extent, huge trawlers or sort of you know certain in, industrial fleets are taking huge chunks of the of the quota that we do have at the moment, meaning that the smaller boats and the smaller um, bits of the industry have got very little to go around, and and that is in some way contributing to the decline of communities. It, is that true? Um, and is that a kind of a bigger factor than whether we're in or out of the EU and how the quotas work? It's, it's a really important point. And, and I would say that to the extent people are paying attention to fisheries in the referendum, there, there's two big misunderstandings. One, that now fish stocks are recovering and quotas are working. Uh, and secondly, that there's a great deal of power that member states like the UK have um, in fisheries management. So I described how when the quota is set, so that's 30,000 tons of cod, when it's distributed to different member states, 20%, 30%, it's then up to each member state like the UK to distribute that amongst its own fishing fleet. And the EU doesn't have much say over that. So if large vessels or small vessels are getting too much or too little quota, if that's the complaint, it's actually to the UK government. Um, and, and to be fair, this is... Greenpeace and in their lobbying, it's all at the UK government level. They're not lobbying the the EU saying more should go to the small scale fleet. Um, and yeah, the, there is an issue here. Um, the small scale fleet, so we define that as um, fishing vessels that are under ten meters. They get about two percent of the quota, no but they represent eighty percent of the vessels. Wow. It's not quite as extreme as it sounds. A lot of them will be fishing species that aren't under quota management. Um, but I think it's definitely true. And I think people have seen this in, in coastal communities um, that a lot of the small ports are basically disappearing. Whereas the large ports, Newland, Peterhead, uh, they're, they're booming right now. And their large trawlers are doing really well. Their their profit margins, I mentioned, it's like 30% across the industry. They're much higher than that. And a lot of the small-scale fleet is close to zero or actually in negative profits. So there are some really good arguments about why the UK needs to be more active in the management there. So then hang, on a, hang on a blinking minute. So Nigel Farage <laughs> is sat on a, on a boat going up the Thames saying it's all the EU's fault that all these little fishy boats that I'm here with don't have a livelihood. But actually, the UK government is the one that's deciding that uh, only 2% of the rights to fish certain sorts of fishes go to the little boats. So, it's all the, so why, why is he not taking his, why is he not banging on about, if he really cares about little fishy people, which, you know, we can debate. Mm. Um, why is well, he, maybe that's the question. <laughs> why is maybe, he, why is he just not? maybe, Nigel Farage doesn't really care about the little fishy boat people. Why is he not taking his fight somewhere else? Well, I'm not sure Farage is taking his fight anywhere because he was, as, as you know, was reported in some of the media, he was on the fisheries committee in the EU uh, and out of 42 meetings over his three years, uh, he went to one of them. Mm. I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question why at the UK level um, politicians aren't talking about this more. Um, and there might be an example here, which we see in other areas of the referendum where UK politicians will point to the EU um, and say, you know, it's it's their faults, but really they're not using the powers that they have available to them. Uh, 
So there will be some people listening to Sustainable Babble who, and cover your ears, Dave, aren't vegan. Whoa, 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 and, whoa. <laughs> and, what? and eat, eat fishes that have got faces and stuff, right? And some people will, will, will say that's a nice thing to do because fish are lovely and good for your health and eating some of them in small quantities is surely okay. Um, so let's just kind of keep Dave quiet for a moment. Uh, before he goes off on one of his militant vegan rants uh, and, and ask the question, so so which fish can we eat and and how many? And and I'm really struck by um, what you said earlier in this chat that that the the quotas are working, that fish stocks are recovering. So surely it is okay to pop down to the chippy and get a, a cod and chips once in a while. So believe it or not, since I've started my research on fisheries, I actually eat more fish now than I did before because. I've always been concerned about overfishing and, and some of the issues there. Um, and I was always confused about which fish was okay. You seem to get conflicting reports about um, what you're allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat. Um, but finally, after three years, I feel like I know some species that are in better uh, stock health than others. Uh, so by all means, begin reading now. And in three years, you can have yourself a delicious <laughs> fish supper, Dave. Um, but but no, my, my honest opinion, and I actually like challenging vegetarians or vegans on this, is that you can definitely have a fish supper that has a lower impact on the environment than than a salad. Um, wow. If you wow. think about, you know, the footprint of, of different products. Um, and actually, I'd go even further and say it's good for the environment to eat some things like mussels. So look at Dave's face. Look at his, his lips. They're all pursing. I'm not saying. So I, it definitely has a net positive. So mussels, they sequester carbon from the atmosphere. That's how they make their shells. They filter the water to make it more clean. Um, and you basically harvest them by putting a rope into the water. They grow on the side, and then you pull the rope in, and then you have mussels. Extremely, extremely low impact. So if I were to you know, do a proper environmental accounting exercise of supply chain impacts, it's very clear that having mussels for lunch today would be a better option than a cucumber tomato salad. Griffin, thank you so much for giving up your uh, Saturday morning in lovely Copenhagen to share um, your wisdom. I have learned a massive amount and um, I hope our listeners have too. Thanks. Thanks so much. If people want to um, to drop your line or, or follow what your work, is there, are you on Twitter or, or how else should people be in touch? Yeah, I definitely argue too much on Twitter. Uh, I'm at GW Carpenter or just search Griffin Carpenter. There aren't that many of us. Sustainable of the week. This is the section every week where we have a little look for some of the egregious eco guff that's been spewed out, usually on the internet, by politicians or companies or by people who just want to sound a bit greener than they really are. What have we got this week, Dave? Giraffes. Yay! Oh, I love giraffes, Oh, You having a giraffe? 
Oh, no, I haven't I haven't a giraffe. I do. I want to tell the listener that you just asked me the question before we were recording. You said, have you ever seen a giraffe in the wild? To which the answer is, no, mate. I don't live in a place where I see the giraffes in the wild. And then you went on some great long rant about your travel yard gap year adventures where you and loads of people called Tarquin and Timothy went off to find themselves in the wilds of Zambia. I didn't do that. You know what I did? I worked. That's what I did. Oh, he's such a bloody lay working class hero, this one, isn't he? Day from the block. Oh, yeah. I grew up in bloody Brentwood, wherever it is. Brentford or Brent, I don't know. And yes. I speak like this because yes. I'm a bloody lad. And yes. I'm, a, I'm salt of the earth, me. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Right, what are we here to talk about? Yeah, so giraffes. Giraffes um, are knackered, apparently, but no one cares. Uh, This is essentially the subject of a documentary which is going to be out this week, fronted by Still Not Dead, David Attenborough, uh, which I'm not sure is something I should really have ever said. I mean, Still Not Dead (laughs) in a very good way. But he's doing a documentary this week which is looking at the plight of giraffes. And while, as the documentary points out, a lot of attention is given to the plight of African elephants, which are being hugely poached and persecuted and their habitat are being destroyed. Giraffes are in many ways in a bit more of a of a pickle. They are down giraffes to Giraffes in a pickle. Giraffes, pickled giraffes. That mm. would get through a few fair, fair few burgers, wouldn't it? Mm. They Stuck are, in your throat probably, wouldn't it? <laughs> it probably would, yeah. Uh, they are down to about 150,000 apparently, whereas African elephants are about 500,000. Uh, but there's very, very little serious um, thought going into conservation. Uh Anyway, one project that is going on is in Uganda, where apparently um, there is a population of giraffes on one side of the River Nile uh, and not on the other. And the problem is they're on the same side as the River Nile as a load of oil, apparently. Uh, Over 75% of Uganda's discovered oil um, is very much underneath the home of all the 1,000 Rothschild giraffes mm. um, in this lovely national park in Uganda. Uh, and that is obviously a bit of a problem um, because I'd imagine they aren't going to leave that oil in the soil. Um, so much so, uh, well, let's let's get Arabella, my little six-year-old niece Arabella, to explain exactly what they are going to do. What, what's going to happen, Arabella? You should not keep all your eggs in one basket. We keep some stock outside of the oil area, so in the event that some impacts may come out of the oil, we have a separate population somewhere else. So the person there talking about keeping giraffe eggs in a basket was the uh, manager, a guy called Tom <laughs> O'Kello. Massive, massive eggs. Yeah, that's, I mean they're mammals, aren't they? So they definitely give birth to massive eggs. D- absolutely, yes, and you shouldn't yeah. keep them in a basket. Unless it's a very big basket. Uh, Tom O'Kello, the manager of the uh, National Park there, basically saying uh, that uh, it's all right if these giraffes get knackered because we keep some other giraffes somewhere else. So let's go ahead and drill all the oil and what's everyone worrying about and stop being such a bunch of moaning ninnies. Why can't you just leave the giraffes there instead of doing this ludicrously complicated process to get them across the river? Did you see how difficult it is and what the, what what is actually involved? I reckon it's quite easy getting a giraffe across the river because I reckon if you had to choose an animal just to take across a river, a giraffe has got a literal uh, 
head start on anyone else. Yes? Can't giraffes just walk across? Like, if, if you walked across the river... <laughs> yeah, OK. So I like to see... I would pay money to see the process of you trying to persuade a giraffe <laughs> to walk across the River Nile. But giraffes must be like... Giraffes must have... You can't live your whole life as, as a giraffe and not realise that your head sticks out higher above the, the water than other things, right? Giraffes must do that sort of stuff all the time. Like, giraffes are going to go to football games and they're not going to worry about like, it's getting seats at the front, are they? They'll just be quite happy sitting at the back because they know that they have a view whatever happens. Like, giraffes must play the basketball all the time. Are you on the- drugs? You've just said giraffes must go to football games and <laughs> giraffes must play basketball all the time. Why can't you just walk a giraffe across a river? I'm not going to answer that question. But it's really dignify not- that with a question. It's not a stupid question. Giraffes have got great long necks and it sticks out. Why is this a problem? I'm sure if the giraffe really wanted to go across the river, it probably could. Probably a bit like elephants. They're massive but can still swim. Because they the could stick is, their trunks how up do as you well. Communicate? So elephants could stick their Shut trunks up. up. How do you communicate to a giraffe that, look, this lovely place you call home and have always called home and provides all of your basic needs in terms of shelter and food and other lady giraffes to stick your presumably phenomenally large giraffe woolly inside... Uh, this is going to become an oil field, so it's in your best interest to walk across this massive river. I, I, I put to you that that is a difficult message to convey in giraffe language. Have you got anything vaguely serious to say about this whole issue? Yes, you I usually have. do. Yes, I have. Shut up right, and listen. Say it. <laughs> What I've got to say about it is this. Stop drilling all the oil. Or more specifically, right, if you're going to drill the oil, accept that what you're doing is destroying stuff, right? Which I suppose actually is what they're doing. So your man here, your park manager, it's not actually sustainable. He's not going, oh, well, no, you know, no, we not. can... we can classic babble. It's not. He's not going, you know, we can sustainably ensure the, ensure the population of giraffe continues whilst getting out the oil that we need to pump, you know, to keep our industries going. He's basically going, yeah, we're going to kill some giraffes. Because uh, we have to do that, because getting the oil out is more important, right? So in a way, I reckon at least you know, let's give him credit for being honest about it. Because um, you do get, do you not, all in the area of drilling for stuff, you can get some quite prodigious babble if you put your mind to it. You certainly can. Which brings us on to our sub babble this week, um, which rather than we, we move swiftly from Uganda to the equally exotic but in a different kind of way, Northern Ireland. Uh, where this week um, there has been a relatively good bit of news because the nasty drilling company called Infrastrata uh, have, who have then has been a big fight for a long time about whether they can drill uh, to look for oil in Woodburn Forest. Um, they did drill and did look for oil, and this is what they said happened. Wireline log analysis has calculated porosities over 20%. In the upper parts of both the Sherwood and lower Permian sandstones, but both targets were water wet. What? What? <laughs> what the hell is that, Arabella? We're very sorry for making you read that out because it's, uh, yeah, it's very right. I'm going to ask you. How many some... six-year-olds have to read out the word porosities? I think what they mean is this rock. This sandstone, which is quite porous, mm. could potentially have had loads of oil in it, like shale oil or, and stuff that you can explode the rock to get the oil out of, I think. But instead of oil, it's water. And water isn't as delicious and sellable 
It's not so as it's not as dry as what you were hoping for because <laughs> no. it's wet, isn't it? Um, so I think, I think what they mean I is I think that's what they mean. I think that's what they mean. They drilled a massive hole looking for oil and they didn't find it. What they did find was a huge amount of ball ache because people protested it. Um, and what was the policing? What happened? What went on? Well, I mean, there's been, as you'd imagine, a lot of a lot of protest, um, and planning permission was granted in very dubious um, terms. Very seemed to be highly undemocratic process, um, which, if you talk to anyone who campaigns on the environment in Northern Ireland, sadly, is not unusual. Um, but yeah, so a big amount of protest, a lot of policing, some arrests, which were for people, e.g., walking on rights of way. So not quite sure what's going on there. Anyway, a lot of hoo ha. And yeah, they said um, it is naturally disappointing not to have encountered a hydrocarbon accumulation, i.e. bugger. Reasons to be cheerful. So, reasons to be cheerful. Uh, This is the section every week where we try to forget about all of the awful things that are happening and focus on the one or two very small good things that are happening that make us feel warm and fuzzy in our special area. Uh, What is happening this week, Dave, that is good? Uh, Well, we have been talking, we talked last week and we've talked quite a few weeks and we will go on to talk some more about electric cars, which Mm. are cars that run on electricity as opposed to dead dinosaurs, which is what most cars (laughs) run on at the moment. Um, And the thing that is happening that has made me a bit cheerful is something that actually isn't very good in general, but it's getting more cheerfuller, which is Volkswagen. Ooh, naughty, naughty Volkswagen. See episode, this is me saying this, see episode 25. That's right, when we talked ah. about naughty, naughty Volkswagen, which uh, is a German car company that got caught with their knickers down, um, fiddling the... Uh, what? <laughs> running, out of, running out of direction for this sentence. Help, help. Volkswagen are supposed to be selling cars that are low uh, emissions, low particulates, not much horrible stuff going into the air, and they got caught not doing so. In fact, they got caught specifically uh, making the tests that they do uh, appear one thing but actually being something else. You'll remember all of this. It was a big, I big do story. remember all of it. Yeah. Yes, they're, they're what were they called? Cheap devices, I think. They install clever bits of software. That's right, so that when you did the test in the laboratory, it said that you were emitting what you're supposed to be emitting, and when you actually drove the car, it didn't. Go back and listen to episode 25, where we talk about this. So, um, what they have said, last week, a thing happened, which is a reason to be cheerful. Volkswagen came out and they said... Well, we're not going to do that sort of car anymore. Rather than mm-hmm. trying, no, rather than trying to make our cars clean enough to pass these emissions tests, which we've been caught with our knickers down, uh, not managing mm-hmm. to do, we're going to make electric cars instead. And by the year 2025, they'll be spending 10 billion euros a year, which is what, £2.50 or something. Um, so, yeah. yeah, something like that. Um, and they plan to sell 3 million electric cars a year by then. Pretty good. And that'll be financed by cost cuts in other areas, which basically means they're going to spend a lot less on dirty, horrible cars, and they're going to make electric cars instead. And it's interesting, isn't it, Ol, that that is how your big, uh, reputation-knackered German car company has reacted to all of the horrible stuff that's been going on. They've basically gone, okay, fair enough, we're not going to do horrible, dirty cars at all anymore. It is amazing. And a lot of people have been talking about how the whole VW 
Dieselgate scandal, and there is a, there are rumours that this is not just limited to VW. By the oh, way, well. that there are, there are other people doing it, um, but that it has been a game changer. And I, you know, there's some scepticism about that, but I think this story is is as you say an indicator of just how much it has changed the game. Um, we said last week that there are about a million electric cars in the world at the moment. So for VW alone to be saying that in under ten years they will be making three million a year. And that's pretty massive. And also, you know, the big European manufacturers like VW and others um, decided quite some time ago that their, you know, their strategic direction was going to be to do sort of clean diesel, to do lots of diesel ones that were Hang on, low Mark. emission. What? S- what? Strategic what? direction. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's been a while. Yes, it has. Um, oh, this is what happens when I start talking about something that I know a little bit about. I turn into the bore that I really am. <laughs> you turn into the babble monkey that underneath <laughs> underneath know. this flippant surface actually resides a bubbling geezer of babble. <laughs> so let me finish the point without t- saying too many jargon-tastic phrases. The point is... Other places like Japan, where manufacturers like Toyota uh, decided a while back that electric cars and hybrid cars are the way forward. That's why you've got lots of Priuses and stuff. And that's why places like Norway um, uh, have got lots of electric cars, 25%. The big European lot, however, decided that diesel was the way forward, that you could say, look, there's hardly any CO2 in these things, uh, so diesel is good for the planet. This has changed. This is a massive moment where they're going, do you know what? Diesel probably ain't the answer. Petrol probably ain't the answer. It's electric cars. It's self-driving cars. It's, they're even talking in this story about car sharing, which is pretty amazing, given that presumably VW and any other manufacturer want as many people as possible to buy and own their own car. Here's a thing I noticed this week. You remember back in episode six when we talked about Top Gear? Yes, you do. It was Top Gear. We talked talked about Top Gear. We talked about Top Gear, which is a big uh, car. This is how long we've been doing this for, which was presented by somebody at that point called Jeremy Clarkson. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I have no idea. No idea who he is. And we ended that little section. It's still one of my favourite things we did, actually. We ended it looking at a thing that Clarkson had done where he had talked about basically the end of petrol cars. He'd done this feature where he had oh, said... Was that BMW, wasn't it? it was, that BMW, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I do remember. And he said that, you know, basically, uh, that's it. The environmentalists have won. Cars are going to be electric. And the reason I'm bringing this up now, I mean, that was over a year ago. I'm bringing this up now because the new Top Gear, which I watched an episode of this week and have concluded, as everyone else is concluding, that it is shit. Um, mm. But it had a report on what they reckon is the last Ferrari that's going to be made without any sort of electric components at the last and they talked about it slightly wistfully but they basically it was it seems to just be accepted now that cars are going to be electric it's a thing they're not going this is awful they seem to be going well the next supercar is going to be an electric one and everyone seems like this is happening this is a thing it's happening so quick oh yeah, this electric yeah. car thing isn't it so fast <laughs> So that is just about it for Sustainable 53, another episode in the can. Thank you as ever, Dave, for being clever and wonderful and uh, the occupier of moral high ground. 
Um, I won't tell the listener what you're currently doing on camera. Uh, thank you to to Arabella, my clever little six year old niece, for reading out. I think possibly the most complicated babble we've ever asked her to read. Anything to say, Dave, at this point? Well, yes, I'd like to thank the wonderful Griffin Carpenter for giving us his brain and his time and explaining to us all about the fishies. Thank you very much, Griffin. And thank you, as ever, to the wonderful Dickie Moore for the music that starts and ends and intertwinkles this here podcast. And I'll... Yes? You may not have noticed this, uh, but there's a referendum going on. And I just oh, wanted... Really? There Hold is on. on Yup. Yep. And I just wanted to alert the listener to... We've done a whole episode about Yup, in episode 42. Well, not a whole episode, but we went into a lot more of like whether or not it's green or not to vote for getting out of Yup. And we've done an interview with someone who knows more about it than what we do. So go back and listen to that. Okay, well, we will uh, see you next week. But if you want to get in touch with us in the meantime, you can do the following. Tweet us at The Babble Wagon. Uh, just find us on Facebook. Search for Sustainable. Drop us an email at hello at sustainababble.fish. And if you enjoy this podcast, give it a good rate and give it a thumbs up in whatever your podcast medium of choice is and tell your friends because that makes us very happy little babble, isn't it? It does. All right, Dave. See you next week. Bye. Bye.